Well, uh, we will uh, continue in our series in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 16. Back in chapter 16, we're going to be pick up at uh, verse 16. And we're going to read a good bit of this um, part of the text all the way through, chapter, through verse 40. Let's begin this time by praying. Would you bow your heads with me one more time? Draw us close, Holy Spirit, as the scriptures are read and the word is proclaimed. Let the word of faith be on our lips and in our hearts, and let all other words slip away. May there be one voice we hear today, the voice of truth and grace. Amen. Well, in chapter 16, uh, Paul and Silas and, and Timothy and the rest of Paul's group are continuing on their journey in the second uh, missionary journey that Paul takes in the book of Acts. And we've come to the, to the, the town of Philippi. We heard from, uh, from Paul's letter earlier. Pastor Kevin uh, quoted some, some verses from Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Well, this, is, um, this story here is a part of when the, the, the church begins to be planted in the town of Philippi. We're going to hear a good bit of this text, so I'm going to allow you to, to remain seated for this, this story, this powerful story from the book of Acts, chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. The words will be here on the screen. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divinization and brought her owners a, a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit one day, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city, they are Jews, and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these orders, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet to stocks. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up, he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. At that same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. When the morning came, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported the message to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul replied, They have beaten us in public, condemned, 
condemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and now they are going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home, and when they had seen... When they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. This is the written word of God for the people of God. We say, thanks be to God. This famous story from the book of Acts, um, such a powerful story. I um, have to confess the epiphany of this text came to me this morning. As I was kind of reading over it again and reworking it a little bit before the service, I, I had an epiphany about this text and we'll get to that. Um, It's such a powerful story that actually begins in the middle of another story, a story that we don't get a lot of information on. A lot um, of the details are are missing from the book of Acts. But it's a story of a girl, a girl whose life has been defined by the value that she is able to provide for her owners. Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of information about this girl. We unfortunately don't even hear about what happens to her after she has been healed. But um, we hear about her. We jump in the middle of her story. We hope that Paul, after casting out the spirit, ensures that this girl was cared for and not simply left to the hands of her evil masters. But Luke doesn't tell us. We're in the middle of the story of this girl. She isn't even given a name by Luke. Luke doesn't even know her name. She has no control over her own body. She has no control over her own life. She has no control over her own destiny. She is possessed. She is oppressed. She is possessed by owners. She's a slave. She's commodified. That is, she's a human being who has been made into a product that can be sold, that can be used to make money. A person who is uh, not seen as inherently valuable because the fact that she is a human being bearing God's image in the world, but because she can bring money to owners, to masters. This slave girl is also possessed by a demon, and this is closely tied to her possession by owners. A demonic spirit makes use of her body just as her owners make use of her. Her voice, her words are not her own. It is a spirit who speaks through her and uses her to build her master's wealth and hold the power of information over others. This is too common in our world. Maybe not exactly the way that we see it in this story, but humans are too often diminished to the value that they can provide for someone else. Most of us aren't experiencing the the type of commodification that this slave girl experienced, but we do experience this on a different level. A sort of necessary evil in our world is that we all have jobs with titles and, and with compensations that are purely based on the value that we can bring others. The value that we can bring about our, to our company or our, or, or our organization that we work for. And so we need, we need work, right? We need work to, to, we need promotions. We need raises in order to increase the value of our lives, to provide for our families. This is something that we need in our world. And we, we need this to survive and provide, of course, and even to be fulfilled. A lot of us were fulfilled by our careers, right? And don't, me, don't hear me proposing some anarchism where we all just quit our jobs and just forget about it and just move, move out into some confine, right? Be careful if, you ever, if someone ever proposes that to you, right? That's a little bit dangerous. But I think what's dangerous is when we, when we take that, that value labeling that takes place in our workplaces the, where we can provide value for the employer and, and, and we are we're paid, we're given value based on that, we leave it there. 
I think, unfortunately, our world has formed us and shaped us to take that way of valuing ourselves and others into the world, into the rest of the world, into the rest of our existence. I think we are shaped, we're conditioned to do this to ourselves and to others ourselves. Sometimes we choose our friends, our family, and even our churches based on what they can provide for us. We value others based on what they can give us, what we can get from them. Perhaps it's not always money, it's popularity, networking, or good programs, fun toys, right? Those types of things that can be provided for us. We place a value on others, and we have values placed on us by others. This is a part of our fallen world. We've been conditioned to act this way, to to think it's okay. There's a whole term in the economic world called human capital. Maybe you've heard this term, a human capital. It's a necessary evil that some might say it, it requires us to have a, a human worth or based on you know, what they can provide for a company or an organization. And it's, again, not so much that this takes place in the workplace that I'm taking issue with. It's that we take that out and we place it in the world. We do the same thing in the world. It doesn't stay there. Our, our identities are so often tied to our work identities, to what we can provide our organization. Think about it. If you're at a party, you meet someone new, and they ask you the question, what do you do? What are they asking you? Are they asking you, what do you do for food? What do you do for fun? What do you do for family? What do you do for church? What do you do for prayer? What do you do for religion? No, they're not asking that. They're being very vague, but we know what it means when someone asks us, what do we do? We're being asked, what job do you have? What value do, do you provide for our society, right? What, how are you contributing to the means of production, right? That is the question that is, that is in there. But in reality, in grammar, it's vague. What do you do? What do you mean, what do I do? We know what that means. And we've taken that, and it's so much a part of our identity, what we do, what letters are behind our names, what, what we're able to accomplish and provide for others. It's so much a part of our identity. And we, we experience that. Our identities have been tied to our employment and therefore what value we can provide others. We've been conditioned to think that this is normal, okay, and even good. And again, in the workplace, yes, it, it's needed, right? We want, us, we want ourselves to be valued more if we work harder, right? We want ourselves to be valued more if we have a newer degree, a, a, a higher um, specific degree, right? We want to be valued that way. But when we take this out into the world and we apply it to ourselves and we apply it to others, we're misusing that. We're placing value on someone not because of the nature of who they are, that they are a children, child born in the image of God, but based on what they can provide us and others. And this is what takes place again to this girl. Her entire life, her entire identity is tied up in what she is able to provide for her owners. It's, she's possessed by a demon. She follows Paul and Silas proclaiming something that seems to be true, right? Then listen to what she says. These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. Seemingly truth statement that is being stated over Paul and Silas. She serves as a sort of herald of what Paul and Silas are doing, who they are, and, and what their mission is. But what we must realize is that her ability to see Paul and Silas for who they are, it's a, it's a part of her that's enslaving her, it's possessing her. It's not herself, it's not her own voice, it is not her. What she proclaims, Paul likely worries, may cause some confusion among the Philippians that he's among. She says, most high God, which is true, but most high God to the Philippians was not Yahweh, was not the God of Jesus Christ. And it may have been any God that they chose in the Roman Pathenion. Sorry, I can't say that word. Her possession was seen by locals as a gift, but for her, it was actually a curse. Paul knew it was a curse. 
The last thing that the missionaries want is for the people to be confused about who Paul and the companions serve, right? After many days, the girl does this while Paul and others are walking. Where are they going? What does Luke tell us they are doing? They're going to the place of prayer. They're going to the place of prayer and they're being interrupted. They're being disturbed as they journey there for many days. Not one day, not one instance, but many days this takes place. And Paul and the others are walking to the place of prayer. And Paul gets fed up. He's tired of having their walks interrupt, their prayer walks interrupted by this woman, the spirit crying out. Paul just wants to go pray. But every day the spirit haunts their footsteps, drawing the attention of everyone that walks by. Paul is annoyed, Luke tells us. He's sick of being bothered. What Paul doesn't realize is that this is how it must be. This is how it must be. Paul wants to go to prayer and his time is being disturbed. The possessed girl is disrupting his prayer. And this is how it must be for the Christian. The cries of the oppressed, the the possessed, and the distressed must always be disruptive to the Christian's prayer walks. The cries of the oppressed and the possessed must always disrupt our pious acts. Paul and the others, they're on a mission from God to bring life and love and, and life to the, to, by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Prayer is an important part of this mission. It's crucial to what they are doing. But that prayer cannot become disconnected from what they are doing, from their mission, from proclaiming the good news to those that need to hear it. Our times and practices of prayer and worship and devotion must not become a means of escaping the suffering of the world. As devoted and pious people, we must be disturbed by the suffering of the world. William Jennings says Paul is moved by no great spiritual discernment and no righteous indignation, but simply and beautifully by annoyance. He's annoyed. Paul was annoyed. Enough of this religious noise, enough of this mindless praise of God and God's servants in order to mask demonic activity. Holy annoyance drives Paul to silence the spirit. And by doing this, he frees the woman from her possession. He gives her her own voice back. And while we don't know what happens next, we can know that this woman's dignity is restored to her. No longer is her value being determined by what she can provide for her owners. Paul and his companions cannot escape the cries of the possessed woman. And that is what it, the way it should be for followers of Jesus. Prayer and worship and devotion, they're not a way for us to escape the suffering of the world. They're not a way for us to get away from the suffering of the world, but in a, but a way for us to more faithfully engage that suffering. And it becomes that for Paul in this story. It should be no surprise that when Paul's time of prayer goes from prayer that is disturbed to prayer that disrupts, to prayer that disturbs itself. The the owners of the freed girl become angry with what they've done. Their means of income has been dispossessed. (laughs) The person they saw simply as a cash cow has been given her own voice back. And so they use their power, their influence to draw a mob and force the hands of the ruler, the magistrate. The owners say, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews. They are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The owners are angry. Their accusations against Paul and Silas are intended to manipulate the people's fears, saying they are Jews. They are not us. They are outsiders. They want to, he wants to activate their xenophobia and their bigotry. These people are outsiders. They're disturbing the peace. They're messing up the normal way things are done around here. 
It won't be the last time that Paul and his companions are accused of this very thing. And the accusation actually continues to grow. This is what results in the suffering and the persecution of the the Roman Empire that we hear about in the book of Revelation, right? This persecution that takes place all is in the grounds of these are Jewish people who are disturbing the peace. The accusation produces that these accusations, they produce results. And once again, the prison rears its head in the book of Acts. It's a tool of of the powerful to silence the gospel, at least attempt to. Here we are again, once again in the prison because they dared to challenge the system of commerce, money making. Their quiet piety for the many days that they had been in Philippi. Remember, they'd been there many days. This had been going on for many days. They had been quietly praying their quiet piety. That didn't disrupt Philippi. They were okay with that. Go ahead, do your quiet piety. But as soon as you disrupt the means of production, we're going to come after you. That's unforgivable. Paul and Silas, they're stripped naked. They're beaten. They are thrown into the deepest part of the prisons and they are securely bound because they dared to rescue the possessed, oppressed, and distressed person. And so now they are possessed by chains. Now they are oppressed by the powers that be. And now they are distressed, most certainly. In the depths of their own oppression, Paul and Silas, they pray and sing. In the midst of their distress, what the way that they respond is by praying and singing, by putting on a worship service. They've been trained for this moment, you see. Every day, each and every time that they've dared to pray in the name of Jesus, they've been prepared, they've been trained for this moment of suffering. Their state does not lead them to despair, it leads them to prayer. And here we, as the readers of the story, we learn why prayer is so important for the people of God. Not just for the people's spirits, but for their bodies as well. Jennings says this scene of their worshiping God, it's startling and surreal only if we forget that this scene is the originating scene of Christian prayer. The place from which all prayer to and through Jesus finds its beginning point and then moves towards heaven. The Christian center of prayer is revealed at the site of suffering and rejection. Just think about this image that's right here behind me. What is this image of? It is the image of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in the midst of suffering. He knows what is coming. And how does he respond? He prays. When he's on the cross suffering in the midst of suffering, how does he respond? By praying. That is the originating scene of Christian prayer. And what I mean by that is all other Christian prayer finds its home there. That is the home of Christian prayer in the midst of suffering. Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, praying to the father in the midst of suffering. He knows what is going to happen to him. And even when that does happen, he's still in prayer comes to the place of suffering and then again he again he's hanging on the cross he turns to the father so paul and silas as they sing and pray in the midst of their suffering in the midst of that prison their prayers are mingled with the prayers of christ and all those who suffer and cry out to christ this is why i had that revelation text read earlier in the in the book of revelation we hear in the eighth chapter that the heavenly throne room there's a whole space designated For the burning of incense, which represents the prayer of those who are suffering, the saints who cry out to God in their pain. Paul and Silas are being joined to this original scene of Christian prayer. It is the originating scene. It is what all Christian prayer goes back to, this place of praying in the midst of suffering. And this is why prayer matters, not just to spirits, but to bodies as well. Paul and Silas, in their practice of praying to the God of Jesus, they've been formed into people who respond to the suffering of their world. Not ignore it, 
not move on past it, but respond to the suffering of their world and their own suffering by praying, by worshiping. Even as their bodies are abused and chained, they do not despair. They have a hope. And now their prayer truly becomes disruptive. In the middle of the night, Luke tells us, the foundations of the prison are shaken. The very foundations of this system of, of, of possession and oppression are shaken. The jail's foundations are shaken. The prisoners are given a way out. The, the gates are thrown open wide. The walls that were meant to keep people in have failed at what they were meant to do. The jailer, once in league with the owners and the powers, becomes hopeless and in need of rescue himself. He knows what happens to jailers who fail in their duty. And we, as readers of Acts, know what happened to to jailers that fail in their duty. But Paul and Silas, missionaries from Jesus, they haven't followed Peter's example in leaving their chains behind. Instead, they've they've stayed. A different mission awaits them. They stay behind. Their prayers have shaken the prison foundation. And now even the jailer is asking that famous question, what must I do to be saved? He's shocked that apparently none of the prisoners have left. Listen to this. I I always heard this story that that everyone left except for Paul and Silas. They stayed behind in order to have this interaction with the the jailer. But that's not how the story goes. Listen to this. Verse 25. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Listen to this. The prisoners were listening. Paul and Silas weren't just having a worship and prayer session for themselves. The, The prisoners were listening. They were captured by this way that Paul and Silas were responding to their imprisonment. They were having a worship service. So when the jailer wakes up, verse 27, he sees that the doors are open. He supposes, the text tells us, he assumes that all the prisoners have escaped. He's going to take his own life because he knows the fate of a failed jailer. But Paul shouts for him to stop. Verse 28, he says, do not harm yourself for we are all still here. Not we too, me and Silas, are still here. Look, you still got a couple prisoners to take credit for. No, he says we are all still here. That means none of the prisoners have left when they had the opportunity to. Why? Why did these prisoners not leave when those doors flew open? Because they were in the middle of a powerful worship service. They were in the middle of a time of prayer. Their lives were being changed by what Paul and Silas were doing in response to their suffering. The prayer and worship service has so shaken the foundations of the prison that the prisoners themselves have even forgotten their role. They want to get out. That's supposed to be their role, but they've forgotten that. The question from the jailer then comes, well, what must I do to be saved? And he's really asking, what must I do to experience what you all are experiencing right now? To be so free that, that, that your chains fall off in the middle of prison and you don't run out. To be so free that no state of your body can can dispossess or possess who you are, your spirit. The story begins with prayer that is being disrupted and ends with a prayer that is disrupting the power systems of the world. That, That is Christian prayer. That is Christian prayer. This is not a dead piety or escapism, praying to get out of the world, praying in time to to escape suffering. It's faithful engagement and foundation shaking. It's turn, it turns over the world as Paul and Silas will again be accused of doing just in the next chapter in another town. This is Christian piety. It is at home in suffering. It reveals its power in suffering. When we understand our faithfulness to be practices of prayer and worship in this way, then we are truly praying and worshiping as Christians. Prayer and Christian worship is not just about personal salvation, religion, escaping suffering. 
It is corporate. It is communal. And it will result in confrontation with those broken systems in our world. If it is not truly Christian, if it does not find its originating image in the Garden of Gethsemane, then it is at risk of just being one more thing that upholds the powers, the broken, sinful systems in our world. Christian prayer that originates in the Garden of Gethsemane is not about escaping suffering. It's about receiving strength in the midst of suffering, to engage suffering in our world. Jennings says prayer and singing joins us to the tortured and chained bodies, both past and present. The real pressure placed on disciples' bodies as they look towards God. Praying and singing are acts of joining that weave our voices with the voices of all the disciples who've come before us with Jesus himself in the midst of his suffering. That is the power of Christian prayer. Each time we gather in the name of Jesus, we are gathering in the name of the one who prayed in the midst of his suffering. Each time we gather in that name, we lift our voices. This is the point of reference in the Garden of Gethsemane. It should shape our reverence and drive us to learn and know and change the situations that cause suffering. Change the situations and systems that result in people's suffering bodies. This is Christian faith and worship. When we confess that Christ has died for the sin of the world, this is what we mean. This is what we mean. We now are his body and in this world and doing the same that he did, engaging the suffering in our world, not escaping it. Praying for the strength to face the suffering of the world and the broken systems that and shake their foundations by our prayer and worship. That is Christian prayer. And so when we begin these ministries of prayer at the parsonage in these different places, it is not about going to a place to escape suffering. It is going to a place to lift up the suffering of the world to God so that we as God's body, as Christ's body in the world can faithfully engage it. That is Christian prayer. That is Christian worship. And that is what we confess when we confess the creeds of our faith. So our response time this this morning will be a time of confessing our faith in the form of the Nicene Creed. It'll be here on the board. If you would um, join me in reading this creed that confesses our faith in the one who suffered and prayed. Say this with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty maker of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantiated of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. 
We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Praise Him, would you come and lead us in one final song as a, as a response to our faithful engagement with the world. Let us sing this final song together.